man living under certain economic conditions is no longer in possession of the fruits of his life. His life is not his. His life is lived according to conditions determined by somebody else. And I would say that on this particular point, which is very important indeed in the early Marx, you have a basically Christian idea. Christianity is against alienation. Christianity revolts against an alienated life. the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernica. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week we are talking with Greg Hillis. He's an associate professor in the theology department at Bellarmine University. He writes a bunch of really fascinating stuff about theology, but especially about Thomas Merton. And we invited him on the show to ask him to tell us a little bit more about Merton beyond just uh, being a really cool devotional writer or something like that. That clip in the very beginning of the show is from the YouTube video that uh, Greg recommends about Marxism and monasticism. So uh, we'll learn a bit more about that in a minute. Surprise, he's very cool. <laughs> Surprise, indeed. We we even admit that we're surprised a few times in the whole interview. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh some of Greg's uh, recent stuff has been looking at uh, Merton on race and civil rights movements. We talk a bit about that and about communism and Ernesto Cardinal, all the faves, uh, but also a little bit about how revolutionaries can learn from contemplatives and what that might look like. Uh, lots of good food for thought. All right, here's Greg. Thanks for coming on the show, Greg. Uh, before we just kind of dive into Thomas Merton here and try to learn a little bit more about his life beyond like the Christian living section at our uh, local Christian bookstore, could you maybe just like tell us a bit about yourself and what attracted you to Merton in the first place? Sure. Um, well, I'm an associate professor of theology at Bellarmine University. It's a Catholic um, liberal arts school in Louisville, Kentucky. <clears throat> and I actually got interested in Merton uh, when I was fairly young, when I was 23, uh, at the time I was doing a second undergraduate degree and had just got married and really had no idea what I was going to do with my life, um, which is generally how most 23-year-olds are, and um, and managed, you know, for some reason over Christmas one year I had uh, uh, nothing to read. I was going home and um, happened to see that I had a copy of the seven story mountain on my bookshelf. So I decided to read that over the Christmas break. And that was my entrance in, into learning about Merton. Uh, the book itself was just kind of really important to me. It was a, it was a book about vocation. You know, he had this idea that he wanted to become a priest. He wanted to become a monk and, um, and, and had there all these barriers to him becoming these things. And, when he finally reached resolution um, and entered the Abbey of Gethsemane, I, I, for some reason, even though I wasn't going to become a monk or a priest or anything like that, there was this sense of uh, relief that I got uh, when I read it. And so I just started reading everything I could of Merton's. And um, I took a little bit of time away from him uh, while I was doing graduate studies. I studied uh, patristic theology and, um, and then managed to get a job at Bellarmine University where um, the Thomas Merton Center is. Before before he died, he um, made Bellarmine University the official repository for his entire literary estate. So um, now that I'm here at Bellarmine, I've been here for 10 years, I've been trying to take advantage of um, the opportunities that being so close to the archives uh, provides for me. I've always heard of Thomas Merton as kind of like a devotional figure who, um, you know, is instructed for Christian life. Like, like you said, talks about devotion, uh, or 
talks about uh, vocation. Uh, but is there um, is there more about him? Like, who was Thomas Merton? Um, if you had to get, you know, maybe your undergrad students excited about him, what would you say about Thomas Merton? Well, I'd say that um, uh, I'd say a number of things. You know, he, he's he's really not just a devotional figure. I mean, he um, it, the Seven Story Mountain is a pretty devotional book, and in many ways, although I was really impacted when I read it. Uh, uh, when I reread it these days, it doesn't have the same impact on me. And Merton himself later in his life felt that it was kind of an immature book and that it was maybe a bit too devotional. Um, and so what's interesting about Merton actually is that he does have a lot to say about prayer and about contemplation. Um, but he doesn't see prayer and contemplation as just something that is uh, separated from any other aspect of life. In fact, he sees prayer and contemplation as being about, um, as really leading to an understanding of how we interact in the world and how we operate in the world. And so his understanding of prayer and of contemplation leads him to, uh, really after 1958, to start writing uh, a lot about the problem of war, about the problem of racism, um, and to really get involved in uh, a kind of social activism, which of course was very rare for a monk in a contemplative monastery to do. Um, and so what I generally say in terms of why I think students should read Merton, I mean, here at Bellarmine, it's a fairly easy sell because he's kind of the uh, you know, unofficial patron saint of the place. But when I try and tell people about what what makes Merton so compelling? It's that his his social commentary continues to be uncomfortably re- relevant uh, in the present day, um, and his understanding of the political implications of um, Catholic theology, for example, are I think very important. Yeah, uh, we'll definitely get into some of those uh, connections in a minute here. Uh, one thing that we've been learning about Merton lately, I think partly in in my own case, just from following you on Twitter even, is how Merton had this really interesting connection with all kinds of political radicals. I mean, especially in the 60s, you were saying, you know, sort of post-58. Um, but he's, he's intervening in that politics uh, as well. You know, he's not just an observer or critic or comment, commentator. Um, so a lot of the more radical side of Merton seems to sort of come out in letters, uh, you just gave this talk that you sent to us about Merton and this little rights movement that we get a chance to read, and it looks at some some of Merton's exchanges with Father August Thompson, a black Catholic priest in Louisiana. Um, what do you think it's sort of revealed about Merton and his thought by looking at these kinds of dialogical exchanges, you know, underneath like the Seven Story Mountain or other kind of popular books that get circulated? How does that sort of fill out a broader picture of Merton and his placement in this kind of weird world of like 60s politics and people and, you know, controversies in and outside the church? Yeah. So the really, there's this moment that happens in Merton's life. It's on. It takes place on March 18th, 1958. And, and sometimes um, Merton scholars like myself make too much of it, but I actually, I really do think that it's the turning point in understanding why Mer- Merton started getting involved in um, uh, in politics and in social issues in the 1960s. And you know, he was walking the the. He describes this in a book called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, but he was walking in downtown Louisville at the corner of 4th Street and Walnut Street. It's now the corner of 4th Street and Muhammad Ali because Muhammad Ali is also from Louisville. And um, and he was walking on that street corner, and he says um, that he suddenly understood that he loved all the people that he was surrounded by, that whereas previously he understood himself to be separate from the world, uh, previously, he understood himself to be sort of isolated from the world. Uh, he came to realize that he actually couldn't be separate from them and and really didn't even want, want to. And the key for him really is this sense that he got this. It, it, I don't know if one can call it a mystical experience or not, but what he what he comes to to realize is he saw the, what he refers to as the secret beauty of their hearts. And he came to see them as God sees them. And um, he said, if only we could see each other like this all the time. He says, there would be no more war, no more race hatred. He says, the biggest problem would be that we would be tempted to fall down and worship each other. 
which I think is a lovely line, right? And and so this um, it, he he comes to recognize that his life has to be devoted to other people outside the monastery. Um, and so what you what you notice in his letter writing is that from that moment forward, he starts to write um, to many, many more people. And the archives at the Merton Center have um, 21,000 pieces of correspondence. And most of those most of those letters are from 1958 to his death in 1968. So that's, that's an incredible output of letters that he's writing and certainly very unusual for uh, a monk. And as you said, one of these letters or one of the, the people that he wrote back and forth with was this um, was a black Catholic priest uh, in Louisiana named Father August Thompson. And Merton had been writing in the early 60s about the problem of war and um, and whatnot. But he he reads um, a couple of books by James Baldwin, the important civil rights uh, writer. And this leads him to want to write and, and to address the problem of race particularly uh, writing for white people as a white Catholic and what kind of perspective can he bring to the problem of racism. And so he, he ends up writing this essay for uh, a Catholic magazine that's part of the, the New Left um, movement in the 1960s um, called Ramparts. And the, the name of the essay is called Letters to a White Liberal. And in, in that, he is really what I would call prophetic about the idea of white privilege, um, about the the idea that uh, the United States is a racist society structured uh, as a racist society for the benefit of the white, majority white population. And, um, uh, you know, he's speaking in ways that very few other people uh, and certainly very few white people and white thinkers were, were thinking in those at that time. And in that same issue is an interview with Father August Thompson, this, um, this priest that I talked about, in which he talks about what, it, um, what was it like to be a black Catholic priest in the Deep South and the level of prejudice and uh, oppression that he experienced is really unbelievable. And um, and he's very forthright in this interview. And of course, his bishop uh, really didn't like that he had um, spoken up so vocally about uh, about the, what it was like to be a black Catholic. And and he gets in trouble for this. Well, it's fascinating to me that Father August Thompson, you know, doesn't turn to um, uh, you know a, a, a black thinker to try and figure out how to address his white bishop. He he turns to Thomas Merton. And it's clear that Merton had made an impression on him as being a white person who got it, who understood the plight of the black person in the United States and particularly in the, in the Deep South. And so, you know, you asked about what, we, what, reveal, what gets revealed about Merton and his thought through these kind of letters. Well, what gets revealed is Merton is just a fantastic um, observer of um, – of what's going on in society. You know, he is separate from society insofar as he's behind the walls of a monastery. But that seems to give him this kind of clarity of thought where he's able to look at what's going on in society with a kind of clarity that is uh, almost disturbing, right? It's it, I, I talk about it with my students as being like, um, you know, when you when there's when there's a couple that's having problems, right? They don't go, they, sometimes they can't figure out among themselves, amongst themselves, how to deal with the problem. So they go to an outside um, observer, a, a marriage counselor or something to look at it. And this person from a kind of dispassionate perspective can look in and see kind of what's going on. Well, that's kind of what Merton does with society. He's outside of it and he's able to to look at what's going on in sort of disturbingly uh, clear ways. And, um, and, and so he... He provides that kind of guidance for people who write to him, but he, the people who write to him also, you know, when they disagree with him, Merton doesn't take offense and Merton doesn't uh, fight back. He he in, he engages in genuine dialogue where he tries to understand what the perspective is of the other person, and um, in, in a way that uh, 
that I think is instructive for today. Cool. Well, going back to that letter that you just mentioned, the letter to a white liberal that Merton wrote, Mm -hmm. um, which, I mean, by the way, that is a helpful contextualization to this letter. Um, It makes it actually even more important now that I think about it. Uh, Well, in the talk that you gave, you are kind of getting into some of what Merton was doing in the letter to to a white liberal. And um, I think that you you kind of um, summarize it in a, a pretty powerful way. So um, in your talk, you say uh, that what Merton is doing is uh, we know at least where the races stand. No, the greatest threat comes from white liberals who say all the right things, but who cannot be relied upon to remain proponents of racial equity uh, when they see precisely what this might entail for them. Um, So it seems like Merton can still speak or, you know, he had something to say to white supremacy um, of the 60s, but it still it seems like he can still speak to the white supremacy of Christians in 2019 even. Um, so how do you think we can use uh, Merton as insights on Christianity and whiteness today? Yeah, this is one of those circumstances where you read his writings on race, and it seems as if nothing has really changed. Um, and and so his writings on this are as relevant today uh, as they were in the 1960s. And what's um, there have been a couple of... Uh, occasions where I've gone to various places in the United States and talked about um, the Catholic Church's teaching on race and on uh, racism. And generally speaking, uh, the audiences that I'm speaking to are 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 white people. Generally, they're a bit older than me. Um, and they have a fairly limited understanding of what racism is. Uh, Father Brian Massengale, who is uh, a, a really wonderful scholar at Fordham University, he um, he talks about this in a book on racial justice and the Catholic Church, in which he says, you know, most people understand racism to be about, um, you know, harboring hatred within your heart or uh, about individual acts of racism. And under that under that definition, you know, most of us aren't racists, right? We're, we, we generally have sort of these good feelings about uh, people of, of, um, uh, that are outside of our, that aren't, aren't part of our, um, uh, of our race, that, you know, that, that aren't white. Um, but Merton, uh, in ways that sort of foreshadow our, you know, really more accepted understanding of how society works, says, no, I, you can be uh, not racist uh, by that definition and yet still promulgate and still benefit from uh, a society that is structurally unjust. And he says that makes, uh, that makes you as much of part of the problem as it does for the, the vocal white uh, vicious racists in the South, he says, um, because – we benefit, he says, from this white privilege. We benefit from um, the fact that whiteness is still the dominant category by which we define um, everything from political power to economic um, economic stability and economic wealth. And Merton says, as long as that's the case, um, and as long as you're unwilling to really open yourself up to the possibility of genuine equality, which means having to give up power, having to give up wealth, um, and, and having to have the, the wealth shared more equitably. He says most white liberals, when they find out that that's what equality actually looks like, they're going to slam on the brakes. And unfortunately, we've seen that happen over and over and over again. And, um, and really Merton's thesis playing out exactly as he says it will in, in letters to a white liberal. And so I think it's, it's helpful. You know, when I've you know, candidly, when I introduced Father Massengale's book, um, uh, Racial Justice and the Catholic Church, to a group of uh, of white people in Louisiana, you know, Father Massengale is a is a black Catholic priest, and when they read that book, what was fascinating to me was that they tended to see him. Uh, I mean, one of them actually said this, uh, that he just seems like an angry black man, right? Well, uh, that's often a way in which uh, white people will characterize 
having to listen to um, uh, p- uh, people of color talking about oppression. They'll, their way of dismissing it will be to say, well, you're just an angry black man. With Merton, you can't do that, right? And, and so he's a, a very prominent and important white Catholic voice in the midst of the civil rights movement who really and truly gets it and who can instruct and, and provide um, uh, a very clear-headed and, and, and very persuasive understanding of the basic problem of, of our society. So I think you know, his, race, his writings on race are unfortunately um, not as well-known as his other writings, but I think they need to be, to be more uh, well-known. Yeah, uh, it's amazing that you are able to draw that out, I think, just because um, it's also powerful just given the kind of like cultural um, cultural capital that Merton has gained, for lack of a better term, um, over the last you know several decades. Uh, well, I, there are so many other questions I'd like to ask you about this, um, but I fear if I do, we'll uh, derail very quickly. Um, in, in, uh, I want to ask you some questions about communism uh, in particular. This is sort of a, a very uh, on-brand, horrible um, segue and transition, but uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start it and go forward. Um, so you know, both Matt and I identify as communist, uh, one one variety or another, and um, Merton is really interesting because he talks about his own communism when he's young uh, in his autobiography, but in kind of a disparaging way with respect to his himself. Um, he has some other interesting things to say about communism uh, later, if I remember right. But um, at the same time, you know, he has all these relationships with people who are communists or socialists. Uh, we can talk about Ernesto Cardinal in a moment. But I'm just wondering, you know, what, what could be said about this? How do we make sense of Merton's um, maybe sympathy towards some communists, but also his, his anti-communism on purpose uh, from a, you know, particular vantage point? Well, yeah, he, in, in The Seven Story Mountain, he recounts, you know, his flirtation with communism and he he gets um, disillusioned with communism, not because of anything problematic in communism itself, but rather because um, he talks about sitting in a uh, in a Park Avenue apartment for a meeting of uh, cl- uh, of communists at Columbia and one of the you know very wealthy white boys kept talking about how uh, the the balcony would be a perfect place for a machine gun nest, and Merton was like, "Okay, this is ridiculous. You know, these guys aren't actually following what they say that they believe, right? They're instead um, just kind of playing a game." And he had very little patience for that. Um, but you know, he's critical of communism in the. Uh, in the seven story mountain, but he's also, he's critical of a lot of things that later on he, uh, kind of repents of. I mean, he's, he's exceptionally critical of Protestantism, for example. Um, he's quite critical of Eastern religions in, um, in the seven story mountain. And in fact, it, it comes across as a kind of work of, a of this triumphalist Catholic who finally found the truth. Um, and later on, this is one of the reasons why he said he says that the Seven Story Mountain is a little bit of a um, you know an immature work because there's so much in it that I think that he wishes he could have um, rewritten. And uh, his ecumenical and his interreligious dialogue uh, certainly needs to be read in that context of somebody who is kind of rejecting the provincialism and closed-mindedness of the Seven Story Mountain. Well, I think the same can be said about his understanding of uh, of communism. Um, he, uh, it ha- you need to keep in mind, for example, that the very last talk that he gave, um, which was uh, in Bangkok, and in fact he died that afternoon after giving the talk, is called Marxism and Monastic Perspectives. And his entire point there is not uh, in the. I reread it this morning, actually, as part of our to to prepare for this conversation. And his his point in that um, talk is not to um, critique Marxism. It's not to um, suggest that Marxism is uh, inherently problematic. Instead, and he's very clear about this, he wants to um, uh, get away from this sort of um, strictly and often um, knee-jerk anti 
communist approach, which was, of course, very common in the 1960s and uh, common in the United States still today. And instead, what he what he wants to do is to see what ways are um, in in what ways do monastic uh, monks and Marxists in what ways uh, are they trying to advocate for the same things? Um, is there a way in which monasticism and Marxism can be brought into dialogue? What can we learn from the Marxists, and what can the Marxists learn from us? And so. Here's this guy. I mean, it's it's fascinating that this is the very last talk that he gives, essentially saying um, that there's more in common uh, between um, what what Marxism is advocating for and what the uh, and what monasticism is trying to do. You know, as he says, and this is a, a quote he talks about. He says the monk is essentially someone who takes up a critical attitude toward the world and its structures. Just as these Marxist students identify themselves essentially as people who have taken up a critical attitude toward the contemporary world and its structures. And so, you know, he sees himself as a monk, as somebody who is uh, living a life of protest against the very structures of a society that he has um, uh, rejected. And he's not, you know, he is living out a communal. Uh, almost, uh, I don't, small c communistic way of existing by living in a monastery and basically saying that this is the way in which humanity can and should live. Um, and so I think Merton was far less critical, uh, especially throughout the 1960s, especially when he saw how an uncritical anti-communism could lead to um, the very real possibility of global suicide through nuclear holocaust. He was like, yeah, we're not, that's not going to happen here. I'm not going to have this kind of knee-jerk anti-communism. Anti we have to engage in dialogue with communism and recognize what it is that, uh, uh, how it is that it can uh, teach us um, specifically in terms of its critique of social structures. That is extremely interesting. <laughs> Um, I didn't yeah. know about that talk. That sounds amazing, though. Um, seems like a good reading. Yeah, assignment. I think you can actually find. Yeah, well, you can actually find him give the talk on YouTube. I think because it's the only time that Merton was ever televised. Huh. Um, was that very last talk? And uh, if I remember correctly, I think the whole thing is on is on YouTube. It's called uh, Marxism and Monastic Perspectives. All right. Well, I mean, and he literally dies that oh my afternoon. God. So, uh, gotta yeah. check that out. That is an incredible story. Well, speaking more of that, um, that communism and Catholicism dialogue, um, and that tension in Merton's life, um, in past episodes, we've talked a lot about the Nicaraguan revolution and, um, the revolutionary priest Ernesto Cardinal. Um, he's no stranger to this podcast. I think we actually have like three episodes about yeah. him or something. Um, oh, yeah, well, yeah. but he and Merton had a pretty interesting and controversial relationship. Um, and it'd be cool to hear you talk a little bit about that connection as well. Yeah. So, um, Mer uh, Ernesto Cardinal entered uh, Gethsemane uh, in the late 1950s. Um, it's pretty interesting. He um, the, the the biographical details of it aren't completely clear, but it seems as if um, somebody who he was in love with decided to marry somebody else, and he felt this kind of um, religious calling and had studied at Columbia and so was aware of Thomas Merton and basically found himself at Gethsemane and became uh, a novice under Thomas Merton, um, which means that he sat in Merton's classroom uh, for the, the lectures that he gave for the novices, but it also meant that he was under Merton's spiritual direction. So the two of them would um, meet weekly, if not more frequently, for spiritual direction. <clears throat> and if you read Merton's journals, he very quickly recognizes Cardinal as being somebody uh, he could relate to uh, on a very deep level. Um, not only was uh, Cardinal uh, a poet, um, but he was a deep thinker. And Merton, one of the things that Merton is not as well known for is his poetry. Uh, he, there's a, I think the collected poems of Thomas Merton are over a thousand pages, right? But um, Merton and Cardinal both wrote poems. Um, 
Merton uh, translated a lot of Cardinal's poems from Spanish into English and had them published, and Cardinal translated some of Merton's poems into Spanish to publish them there. Um, the only reason why Cardinal ended up leaving Gethsemane is because um, he, he talks about being very, very happy at Gethsemane, but he was developing what looked like a, um, uh, a, a stomach ulcer, and, um, and Merton essentially uh, told Cardinal that he needed probably not to be a monk at Gethsemane, that it was doing him physical harm in some way. Well, the two of them, you know, he ends up leaving and the two of them um, end up writing letters to each other uh, really until the end of Merton's life. And there's actually a book of their letters called From the Monastery to the World that I've been going through. And it's just very clear from their letters that they were exceptionally good friends. Um, at one point, uh, Cardinal invites Merton to join uh, a religious uh, uh, community that uh, Cardinal was uh, deeply involved in, um, and Merton is not able to get the permission to be able to do that, but it's something he's very uh, tempted by. They shared poems with each other, um, and, uh, um, and and really uh, communicated on a, on a very deep level. Um, as you probably know, Cardinal, Merton dies in 1963, and so many of the events that took place in uh, Ernesto Cardinal's life that led him to become uh, a revolutionary end up taking place after 1968. But I'm quite certain had Merton lived that he would not have um, seen uh, what Cardinal was doing as being problematic. He would, I think, probably quite understand uh, why it is that um, he was doing the kind of work that he was doing. Yeah, that's really amazing. And it draws out too the sort of poetic or artistic side and um, the, the devotional and contemplative side of Cardinal uh, a yeah. little more as well. Um, yeah. yeah, Merton gets cited by a lot of revolutionaries, which is kind of interesting. So you mentioned in your talk, uh, Eldridge Cleaver cites him in yeah. Soul and Ice, which I did not know. That's a pretty pretty crazy connection. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I also learned recently Chacha Jimenez, the leader of the Chicago Young Lords, also cites um, the Seven Story Mountain as a transformative influence when he was reading it in prison. That's um, so funny. He, yeah, I know he he comes out and you know meets Fred Hampton and uh, yeah, just crazy. Um, so why do you think that Merton's work speaks so directly to that context? I mean, we talked a little bit about how it still speaks today, but you know, this is a very um, incendiary kind of time. Um, he has a powerful conversion narrative and a lot of revolutionaries cite a kind of conversion story themselves. So why do you think revolutionaries might be attracted to Merton, whether they're, you know, Catholic or not? Well, yeah. And, and what's fascinating to me is that Eldridge Cleaver, um, writes about the seven story mountain and particularly the section where Merton goes to work in Harlem and, uh, in soul on ice. And I'm, I'm looking at it right now. He, uh, he, 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 he talks about how he was in the in prison, and there was a, a teacher who would come in and uh, provide instruction for a bunch of the inmates, and um, and this teacher kept saying to Merton, or kept saying to Cleaver, you know, you really should read Merton. You really should re should read Merton. And Cleaver kept saying, I don't want to read about a guy who intentionally chose to live a life of solitary confinement when I'm trying to get the hell out of here. You know, um, he just couldn't imagine why he would bother reading Merton, but he did promise this guy he would read him. And so he read the seven story mountain and reads this really just these two paragraphs from the seven story mountain where Merton talks about going into Harlem, um, to do some work and seeing this just, um, incredible oppression, right? He doesn't see it as, uh, something that um, is right or normal. He sees it as a, a as a situation that's completely unjust. And from that moment on, I mean, uh, Eldridge Cleaver talks about memorizing this passage. Uh, he quotes the entire passage in Soul on Ice. Um, of all of Merton's works, to be to to view the Seven Story Mountain as a work of social commentary, uh, that to me just blows me away. And the fact that uh, I didn't know about Eumenia's, uh uh, and I'd love to get the reference to that from you at some point, but uh, I had no idea that that the cemetery mountain would be helpful on that. I, um, that that blows me away. But his later writings, I can definitely see this. Um, 
especially movements uh, like the new monastic movement that um, recognizes or, or teaches the idea that in order for us to be whole and in order for us to live in a way that is most just uh, with our neighbors, we need literally to live with our neighbors in common. And, um, and so Merton uh, is very sympathetic and, and thinks that, that that kind of idea is very helpful um, and, and also a, a good way of living in protest to the dominant society. Um, his writings on race, you know, uh, one of the things that I really in, uh, that that I found super interesting is that um, Representative John Lewis, who is of course the leader, one of the leaders who was crossing the bridge at Selma when um, when they were viciously attacked by uh, by the white police, um, he he talks uh, he he put out a press release after Pope Francis came and gave a talk at Congress and mentioned Merton and Representative John Lewis said that he had two books in his backpack when he crossed the bridge at Selma. He said he had a book on political science, um, and then the other was a book by Thomas Merton. And it's not, he doesn't say, I've been emailing him, trying to get him to, uh, trying to find out what this book is that he was actually reading. I haven't got a response yet. But it shows that for, for some reason, uh, Merton's willingness to exist um, in uh, a life which is not easy, right? A life of solitude, but also a life in community, uh, a life of intentional poverty. That gave a kind of legitimacy to the to to what Merton was writing, and uh, made him persuasive to many people uh, on all kinds of spectrums. And it's um, it's one of the things that I think continues to make Merton um, readable today. Dang, that's so cool. Um, so cool that he speaks to those people in like those kind of revolutionary registers. Um, yeah. Well, sometimes Merton gets like lumped in with, um, you know, the other the other wild uh, Catholics that people love to cite, like the Berrigans or Dorothy Day or something. Um, but there's something distinct about uh, Merton himself. Uh, Dean and I were both surprised to learn, uh, actually through an interaction with you on Twitter, that um, mm-hmm. Merton himself, unlike Dorothy Day or the Barricans, uh, they weren't. Uh, he wasn't a pacifist. Um, no. Which, like, I guess we just assumed because <laughs> I don't know. He gets lumped in with those folks so often. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you think that Merton stands out politically in any way from those other folks? Is there something to say about his politics? Yeah, you know, he uh, he's not a pacifist, and he's pretty clear about that in talks that he gives to the novices, but also in some of his anti-war writings and. Uh, what he is, I mean, uh, to speak very specifically, he he is somebody who adheres to the church's just war teachings, um, understands that there is such a thing as just war, uh, but at the same time thinks that in today's day and age, with weapons of mass destruction and particularly uh, nuclear weapons, that the possibility of waging a just war is um, impossible. So what that means, um, of course, is that... Um, he understands war. Uh, he 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 becomes a practical pacifist, not a not a philosophical pacifist, but he comes to understand that uh, war is not something that we can or should engage in any further, given the the technology, the 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 technology of killing. He doesn't think it's possible anymore, um, and that's it's on that level then that he's able to interact with, for example, the Berrigan brothers, uh, with Dorothy Day, with Jim Forrest, who worked at the Catholic Worker. Um, he was able to interact with uh, a number of, of people in the peace movement. In fact, he hosted in 1964, he hosted a, um, a conference at his hermitage where um, uh, a group of, of thinkers from a variety of traditions, including the Mennonite tradition, Catholic tradition, um, non-religious uh, backgrounds, uh, where they came and, and exchanged ideas about how best to uh, promote peace in our society. Um, he, but you know, in terms of what makes Merton uh, distinctive, I mean, he, 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 he's not afraid to um, criticize the the peace movement when he sees that it, it, when he thinks that it's gone off the rails. And so he's an, he's a vocal advocate, for example, of nonviolence. He thinks that nonviolence is absolutely essential. 
But he also thinks that the way in which the nonviolent movement is acting in the 1960s is actually inherently violent. That the point of the, the, the point of many nonviolent protests is simply to um, humiliate or to uh, prove the adversary wrong, right? Rather, he thinks that nonviolence should be about bringing us to a point of conversion as well as our enemy to a point of conversion, um, where we engage in genuine dialogue with each other. And, um, he, you know, that didn't always go over very well, his understanding of nonviolence with uh, the people around him uh, in the peace movement. That, that would be a, an aspect that he – that. Um, that people found problematic. And then the other thing that people in the peace movement found problematic was um, if he believes so strongly in peace, why is he staying in a monastery? And in fact, Jim Forrest talks about um, visiting Merton at Gethsemane and, and bringing Merton a letter that another Catholic worker had written uh, in which the letter is very critical of Merton. It basically says, you know, how, how dare you just stay in the safety of the monastery? Why aren't you out here? on the front lines fighting against um, the injustices and, and fighting against war. And uh, Merton, Merton's response to that was always very clear. He says, my life, the way I live my life is a protest to all those things. That, uh, that, that my contribution is to live in this particular way and to critique from my own particular perspective. Um, so, you know, he, he is distinct insofar as he's really the only one who, uh, uh, unlike the Berrigans and unlike, um, Dorothy Day, uh, he's really the only one living in a, in a, in a tiny little cabin in a, as a, in a hermitage in the woods of Kentucky, right? He's, he's isolated and, and yet he sees that what he's doing is, is, um, just as important as the work that people are doing, um right on the ground yeah uh probably lots more to be said about that and maybe we could sort of extend it a little bit to bring the conversation home um you know we've been talking about merton's political themes that get sort of overlooked or or at least we've overlooked them um but his his life is tied to this religious vocation and like you're just saying he he thinks these two things are intimately related his political uh positions and his spiritual life um and you know it's not like uh it's not for uh lack of reasons that his spiritual devotional writings resonate with people so strongly um so what's this connection between what you might see as a juxtaposition of silence or engaging, you know, Zen uh, contemplatives or something, um, and also being politically engaged. How does he sort of see these two things as being being related? And do you think there's anything instructive for that for those of us who, you know, don't live in a hermitage or something today? Yeah, he wrote this really nice essay for college students in 1968 uh, for the the Catholic newspaper at the University of Louisville. Um, and it's basically about what is the point of silence? Like, why why do people need silence? And of course, you have to remember, who's his audience? Well, it's 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 Catholic students, or it's, it's university students in the 1960s, right? These are the students who are uh, in, in, doing, in the front lines of doing this protest and whatnot. And yet Merton chooses not to write about how to engage in protest, but he chooses to write about... Um, what is the meaning of silence? And what he what he says is this, is that m a lot of our problems in society, the ways in which we're continually dividing from each other, economically, politically, racially, uh, sexually, right? What, the ways in which we're dividing from one another um, goes back to the fact that we don't really know ourselves and who we really are, and we don't really know who other people are. And so Merton talks about these things, he refers to them as the true self and the false self. And he says, most of us are living out of our identities as false selves, where we're just bombarded by the noise of society and we're not really living, we're not really thinking, we're just more or less there and not really um, engaging uh, from a deep perspective of who we are. And Merton says that in order to be able to understand fully who you are. And in this, he, he gives it an explicitly theological dimension, right? Who we are specifically in God's eyes. Uh, he says you have to break out of that noise, that general noise, and devote some periods of time to silence where 
you're able not to be dominated by your thoughts, but to be able to notice your thoughts, the thoughts that are always going on, but f- to do so from a position of silence. And, um, and what Merton says is this, is that when you come to understand who you really are and the, the inherent beauty and dignity of your own identity, that's when you then come to understand, not in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way, the dignity and beauty of other people. And so his experience, for example, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, where he sees all these people, he, he t- talks to them, as, he says, it's like they're shining like the sun, right, in his eyes. Well, that, that's a fundamentally contemplative experience, and it's, it's an experience that he's able to have because of the time that he had spent in silence, because he had understand, come to understand who he is. And at that street corner, he comes to understand just the implications of that. And so part of what his contribution is um, to, the, to the peace movement in the 1960s, to the, the problem of racism um, then and now, um, what he contributes is this idea that um, uh, a contemplative perspective uh, is actually one that doesn't isolate us from others. It actually draws us closer to one another such that we have to love concretely uh, through concrete acts uh, with others. Um, and I think, uh, I think too often the idea of, of spirituality is seen as individualistic. Um, the contemplative life is seen as being something that draws us away from other people. Um, and Merton saw it as being the exact opposite, that even though he was in the, in the, uh, in a monastery, you know, technically separate from the world, uh, he, he had, um, found a profound and deep unity with other people, um, and felt that he needed to do what he could for their well-being. And so he essentially articulates a contemplative politics, right? Uh, a politics that's rooted not in just a, an intellectual understanding of the dignity of, of each and every person, but actually um, uh, rooted in an experiential understanding of how, uh, of the dignity of each, peop- each person. And I do think that that makes a difference. Yeah, it's a really interesting, like, spiritual technology, I think, especially for, uh, you know, the the big problem in revolutionary groups or, like, protest culture or whatever is this, like, hyper-burnout rate and impending cynicism that will definitely set in at some point if you work with other people long enough. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that that's an amazing gift, I think. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, there's a letter um, that he writes to Jim Forrest, and J- uh, Jim Forrest writes to him basically saying... Uh, I'm just burned out. You know, uh, you're talking about the burnout rate in protest culture. He said, I'm just completely burned out. It seems like nothing's changing. Uh, and I'm, uh, and I don't feel like I can go on. And Merton wrote him this really beautiful and detailed letter, um, which is totally sympathetic to, uh, where Merton or where Jim Forrest is coming from. Um, but in which he, he essentially tells him, um, uh, or, or advises him that, he, that, that somehow he needs to uh, recognize that results um, uh, aren't going to come immediately, um, that, that, that change and conversion takes a really long time, particularly when we're talking about the transformation of society, um, but that he himself can live in a different way. And uh, and he himself can operate from a different perspective. Essentially, he's, he argues to Jim Forrest that he needs to take a more contemplative approach to this. And and Forrest talks about, uh, he's still living, and he, he talks about how he carried that letter with him in his uh, front pocket everywhere he went. Hmm. Oh, that's really amazing. Yeah, it really is. Um, what a cool thing. Well, if, um, mm-hmm. okay, so Thomas Merton has a lot to tell us about politics and also contemplation it seems so if someone was really interested in finding out more about uh merton uh, along the, uh, about you know contemplation specifically what would you suggest they go check out yeah so the problem with merton is that i mean there's something like 70 books <laughs> that he wrote uh, that have been that have been published uh that includes the posthumous uh, publications but thankfully there have been a couple really good collections of his writings that um, make him more accessible. So there's um, a, a, 
a book that's published by Orbis Books. Um, it's called Thomas Merton Essential Writings, and it's edited by uh, a scholar, Christine Bochin. Um, and it provides uh, a chapter on his uh, its selections of his writings. And the, the first uh, chapter of his selections is on contemplation. Um, the second chapter has to do with uh, unity and peace. And the third chapter has to do with dialogue. And it's an excellent introduction to his thought. I think it's one of the best. Um, and then there's one other one which deals really more specifically with his um, writings on contemplation. Uh, and it's, it's edited by um, Lawrence Cunningham from Notre Dame. And it's a book called Thomas Merton's Spiritual Master, and it's published by Paulus. Awesome. Well, um, Greg, thanks so much for coming on and telling us about Thomas Merton and all of the cool stuff you know about him. It's been a really uh, enlightening conversation with lots of good reading recommendations and even a good YouTube recommendation in there. So <laughs> psyched to get into it. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you asked. I, I have long considered uh, uh, the Magnificast as having the best name of any podcast ever. That's <laughs> good. Thank you. That's where our goodness ends, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're being Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, and you know you did, you got all those good book recs, you got those YouTube recs, go find out everything there is to know about Tom, Thomas Merton now. Um, you, if you like all of that, though, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash the Magnificast. Is that how it works? I don't think so. Um, but we're all there on social media, and you can follow us to get all of our good, funny content. Um, cool. Well, see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.